From New York, this is Democracy Now! On Saturday, in my direction, the United States successfully concluded an airstrike in Kabul, Afghanistan that killed the emir of al-Qaeda, Iman al-Zawiri. The United States is claiming a CIA drone has killed the leader of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahri, at a safe house in Kabul, in an area where many Taliban leaders live. We'll get the latest and look at his legacy and the U.S. war on terror. Then we go to the fight for reproductive rights in Kansas. Kansas, which is a state that's been at the center of anti-abortion attacks for decades, has now become a key destination state for patients in Oklahoma and Texas and elsewhere who can no longer get abortions in their home states. Today, Kansans are voting on whether to allow the state legislature here to ban abortion, too. This is the first state to vote on abortion since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. We'll go to Wichita. Then, as New York, California and Illinois declare health emergencies over the outbreak of monkeypox, we'll speak to Stephen Thrasher, author of the new book out today, The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United States has announced it's killed al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahri in a drone strike in downtown Kabul in Afghanistan. The U.S. reportedly fired two Hellfire missiles at al-Zawahri as he was standing on the balcony of his safe house located in a wealthy neighborhood where many leaders of the Taliban live. The United States has long accused Zawahri of being a key 9-11 plotter, along with Osama bin Laden, who was killed in a U.S. raid in Pakistan in 2011. President Biden made the announcement of the assassination Monday night. The United States continues to demonstrate our resolve and our capacity to defend the American people against those who seek to do us harm. You know, we, we, uh, we, we make it clear again tonight that no matter how long it takes, no matter where you hide, if you are a threat to our people, the United States will find you and take you out. The Taliban criticized the U.S. attack, saying the drone strike was a violation of international principles. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken accused the Taliban of violating the Doha Agreement by hosting and sheltering the leader of al-Qaeda. After headlines, we'll get the latest from Afghan journalist Bilal Sarwawi. In Kentucky, the death toll from some of the worst flooding in the state's history has risen to 37, with more rain and searing temperatures forecast throughout the week. Hundreds are still missing in Kentucky. In California, two people were found dead in a charred vehicle Monday after the McKinney fire exploded in size to become the largest U.S. wildfire of the year at over 55,000 acres. This follows record heat in the Pacific Northwest, and as forecasters predict more than 40 million U.S. residents face triple-digit temperatures over the next week. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin's office said Monday the conservative Democrat has secured a promise from party leaders and the White House to complete a highly contested gas pipeline. In 2020, construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline was halted by a federal court after activists argued its construction violates environmental laws and could pose catastrophic threats to nearly a thousand streams and wetlands. The deal to complete the pipeline came as Senator Manchin ended months of opposition 
to President Biden's legislative agenda and agreed to support a scaled-down bill to combat the climate crisis. In Washington, D.C., indigenous-led protesters erected large tripods Monday in a nonviolent symbolic blockade of the Interior Department. The protesters are demanding Biden take immediate executive action on the climate. They're rejecting mandated oil and gas lease sales on public lands and waters as part of any new climate legislation. This is activist Ashley Engel of the IKEA Collective. People are dying. My people are dying right now. We are not your sacrifice zones. We will not be your sacrifice zones. We will not sacrifice our lands, our waters, or our children or future generations. And that includes your children, too. And we also want Biden to declare a climate emergency. A federal judge has sentenced a far-right militia leader to seven years in the prison over his role in the January 6, 2021 insurrection. It's the longest sentence yet for a Capitol rioter. Guy Reffitt, a recruiter for the Texas Three Percenters Militia, was convicted in March of five felony charges for leading a mob that charged and overran a Capitol police line. Reffitt was reported to the FBI by his teenage son, Jackson. Reffitt's daughter, Saturday, uh, on Reffitt's daughter Sarah, on Monday, told reporters after the sentencing, Trump deserves life in prison if my father is in prison for this long, unquote. Meanwhile, a new study finds far-right dark money groups have poured unprecedented amounts of cash into Secretary of State races across the U.S. this election year, aimed at candidates who espouse Trump's big lie that the 2020 election was stolen. China's warning the United States of potentially disastrous consequences of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visits Taiwan this week. The Chinese foreign ministry's warning came as Pelosi traveled to Singapore and Malaysia as part of a tour in Asia that includes plans to become the highest-ranking U.S. official to visit Taiwan in a quarter century. If Speaker Pelosi visits Taiwan, it would grossly interfere in China's internal affairs, seriously undermine China's sovereignty and territorial integrity, wantonly trample on the One China principle, seriously threaten the peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait, and severely damage China-U.S. relations. We would like to warn the United States again that China is fully prepared for any eventuality. The Chinese People's Liberation Army will not sit back. In response, Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby warned China against using Pelosi's visit as a pretext to increase military activity around the Taiwan Strait. The U.S. Navy currently has four warships positioned in waters east of Taiwan, including the nuclear aircraft carrier USS Ronald Reagan. Here in New York, the United Nations opened a review of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which seeks to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres opened the conference with a stark warning. We have been extraordinarily lucky so far, but luck is not a strategy, nor is it a shield from geopolitical tensions boiling over into nuclear conflict. To today, humanity is just one misunderstanding, one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. We need the treaty of non-proliferation of nuclear weapons as much as ever. 
U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken accused Russia of dangerous nuclear saber-rattling over its invasion of Ukraine and blamed Iran and North Korea for harming efforts at nonproliferation. His comments come as the U.S. and the world's eight other nuclear-armed nations continue to refuse to sign the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which was adopted by the U.N. last year after it was ratified by more than 50 countries. In Iraq, hundreds of supporters of the powerful Shiite cleric Muqtad al-Sadr continue to occupy the Iraqi parliament, protesting efforts led by al-Sadr's pro-Iran rivals to form a new government. Al-Sadr supporters have declared an open-ended sit-in at parliament until their demands are answered. Meanwhile, thousands of al-Sadr opponents held a counter-protest Monday and were met by police firing water cannons. At least 125 people have been injured in the unrest. The formation of a new government has been stalled since parliamentary elections in October, where al-Sadr's Sadrist movement won the most seats. Back in the United States, voters head to the polls today for primary elections in Arizona, Kansas, Michigan, Missouri and Washington state. In Arizona, several Republicans who've denied Joe Biden's 2020 presidential election victory are competing to become secretary of state, the official who oversees elections. They include Trump-endorsed State Representative Mark Fincham, who sought to overturn Trump's 2020 loss, and state lawmaker Shauna Bullock, who sponsored a bill to allow lawmakers ignore election results and choose their own presidential electors. In Washington state, Congress members Jaime Herrera Butler and Dan Newhouse face Republican primary challengers. They were two of the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach former President Trump over the January 6th insurrection. In Missouri, former President Trump on Monday delivered his endorsement in a crowded race of 19 Republicans seeking to replace retiring Republican Senator Roy Blunt. On the eve of the primary, Trump wrote, quote, Eric has my complete and total endorsement. There are two people named Eric among the 19 candidates vying for Missouri's open Senate seat, Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt and Eric Greitens, the former governor. Greitens attempting a political comeback after a report commissioned by Missouri's legislature in 2018 found he sexually assaulted and physically abused a woman before blackmailing her to cover up his crime. Meanwhile, in Kansas, voters are deciding today on a ballot measure that, if approved, would repeal the state's constitutional protection for abortion and pave the way for conservative lawmakers to enact a near-total ban on the procedure. In Kentucky, a state court of appeals has reinstated an abortion trigger law and a so-called heartbeat statute that bans the procedure after six weeks of pregnancy. This comes after about a month after a lower state court had halted the enforcement of the measures. Well, if more on the Kansas Kansas abortion ballot measure and reproductive rights in the country later in the broadcast. And New York City's declared monkeypox a public health emergency after officials described New York as the epicenter of the outbreak, with tens of thousands of people vulnerable to exposure. California and Illinois also declared states of emergency Monday over the rapid spread of monkeypox. This week, the first monkeypox deaths outside Africa were reported in Spain, Brazil and India. Meanwhile, African nations still have not received a single dose of vaccine against monkeypox, even as the United States and European Union have secured hundreds of thousands of doses. This is Dr. Ahmed Agwell, acting director of the African Centers for Disease Control. Let us get vaccines 
uh, onto the continent. Let us get more resources for uh, preparedness and response to come to the continent. And let us get attention focused on where we can be able to uh, really uh, stop uh, uh, monkeypox at source. And uh, the endemic countries here in Africa is really the best place to be able to start. We'll have more on the monkeypox outbreak later in the broadcast with journalist Stephen Thrasher, author of The Viral Underclass. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, the United States has announced it's killed the al-Qaeda leader, Ayman al-Zawahri, in a drone strike in downtown Kabul in Afghanistan. A CIA drone reportedly fired two Hellfire missiles at Zawahri as he was standing on a balcony in the safe house located in a wealthy neighborhood where many leaders of the Taliban live. The attack occurred on Sunday morning in Kabul. Al-Zawahri's assassination comes nearly 21 years after al-Qaeda attacked the United States on September 11, 2001, and just under a year after the Taliban seized control of Afghanistan. The United States has long accused al-Zawahri of being a key 9-11 plotter, along with Osama bin Laden, who was killed in a U.S. raid in Pakistan in 2011. President Biden announced the assassination of al-Zawahri on Monday night. My fellow Americans, on Saturday, at my direction, the United States successfully concluded an airstrike in Kabul, Afghanistan, that killed the emir of al-Qaeda, Iman al-Zawiri. You know, Zawiri was uh, bin Laden's leader. He was with him all the, the whole time. He was his number two man, his deputy at the time the terrorist attacked 9-11. He was deeply involved in the planning of 9-11 one of the most responsible for the attacks that murdered 2,977 people on American soil. The Taliban criticized the U.S. attack, saying the drone strike was a violation of international principles. Secretary of State Tony Blinken criticized the Taliban for allowing al-Zarawi to live in Kabul. In a statement, Blinken said, quote, by hosting and sheltering the leader of al-Qaeda in Kabul, the Taliban grossly violated the Doha agreement and repeated assurances to the world that they would not allow Afghan territory to be used by terrorists to threaten the security of other countries. Al-Zarawi was a key figure in the international jihadist movement since the 80s. He was trained as surgeon in Egypt, where he was born to a prominent family. In 1981, he was arrested as part of a broad plot to assassinate Egyptian President Anwar Sadat. Egyptian authorities tortured al-Zawahri and others involved in the plot. The author Lawrence Wright said al-Zawahri's time in prison and torture led to his further radicalization. After his release from prison, after three years, al-Zawahri traveled to Afghanistan and Pakistan, where he met Osama bin Laden. The United States has accused al-Zawahri of being involved in numerous attacks, including the bombing of the U.S. USS Cole in 2000, and the bombing of U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania in 1998. After 9-11, the United States put a $25 million bounty on his head. 
We begin today's show with Afghan journalist Bilal Sarwawi, who reported from Afghanistan for 20 years, fled the country after the Taliban takeover, and is now in Toronto. On Sunday, he published photos on Twitter of the house where the drone strike occurred, but at the time, the target of the attack was not known. Bilal Sarwawi, your response to now uh, the news that al-Zarwari has been assassinated by the United States. Well, I think it's shocking that the Taliban uh, would have kept him in Sherpur, which is a upscale neighborhood, uh, not very far from Western embassies, but also the presidential palace. What has come into light, that the house that was targeted has 17 rooms, it has four uh, stories, it has a basement, uh, as well as a balcony. It's sort of a Pakistani-inspired uh, villa that was uh, previously rented uh, by an organization with whom I've spoken. Uh, and we are being told, actually, now by multiple sources that the house belonged to the chief of staff for uh, Sarajuddin Haqqani, who's the interior minister uh, of, of uh, the Taliban, and the police chief of Kabul, uh, someone called Mawley Hamza, also resided in the same street, and that the Haqqanis uh, frequently visited this area. Now, the Haqqani network has had a generational, historical, and ideological relationship with al-Qaeda, starting from the 1980s. There has been many intermarriages. Uh, but again, you know, this is uh, a strike inside uh, the heart of Kabul in an area that is uh, very, very well known to the CIA and other Western intelligence agencies because of the last 20 years they had a presence specifically in this area. They had safe houses. Their partner agency, the, the NDS, uh, had similar safe houses. And, and the irony is that these houses did come under suicide and complex attacks by the Akani network before the fall of Kabul uh, on August the 15th. Uh, in 2021, I remember shortly before the fall of Kabul, the house of former defense minister Bismillah Khan was targeted first by powerful car bombs. Uh, afterwards, uh, attackers got inside and, you know, that led to gun battle for hours. And uh, uh, Bilal, the U.S. has said that there were no other, there were no civilian casualties from this strike. From what you've been able to tell and report, is that accurate? Uh, and you also mentioned the Haqqani network. Could you talk about the relationship between the Haqqanis and the both the Taliban and uh, uh, Al Qaeda? According to sources in Kabul city that I've been able to speak to. At least 12 uh, Arab uh, nationals and foreign fighters are among those killed, including uh, Egyptians. Uh, we are being told by, uh, you know, several eyewitnesses that shortly after the strike here uh, in the neighborhood of Sharina, which is not very far, vehicles were seen transporting what appeared to have been foreign fighters with their families quite possibly heading to other locations, including uh, to the presidential palace. So this also sort of shows you that al-Qaeda was not only quite confident at the very highest echelons, you know, feeling very, very safe in an area like 
Wazir Akbar Khan, but they've had a, a, a presence and now they feel that it's basically their own sort of backyard. As far as the relationship goes, as I said earlier on, it's extremely close, it's generational, it's historical, it's ideological. I would not be surprised if there would be intermarriages uh, for second and third generation of Arab and Afghan uh, you know, fighters. Here I'm talking about the Taliban, and we have to really also remember that Ayman al-Zawahiri is someone who has been in the region for more than 20 years. Uh, he has known a lot of these players in, in the Afghan conflict. He's traveled extensively from Kunar in Nuristan in the east, where he was being hunted down to places like Waziristan. And, and quite uh, honestly, this is an embarrassment for the Taliban as well, who continue to project themselves as the victorious, powerful force that can really deal with any situation. Uh, we don't know who might have given up al-Zawairi, what sort of an operation this could have been. Uh, but according to some sources, uh, Ayman al-Zawairi was transported from North Waziristan or via North Waziristan, uh, possibly in, in the month of May, uh, to, to Kabul, uh, you know, where he lived with his family. And I've been also looking at some, uh, you know, pictures that have been shared with me, uh, which shows that in this very same house, certain Taliban officials, including members of the Akani family, uh, did take pictures. It would appear from the snow that it would be around, you know, winter uh, year 2022. So it will be interesting to know if this was the Abbottabad sort of moment for the Taliban, where certain Taliban officials and leaders may have known about the presence, but others may have not. Uh, but, you know, yesterday there was a big issue between various Taliban officials and ministers, whether there should be a state-level funeral held for al-Zawairi or whether it should not be. But it, it is, a, you know, a conundrum for the Taliban because they cannot deny this anymore. I'd like to bring in Karen Greenberg of the, uh, the Center on National Security at Fordham University School of Law. Uh, uh, Professor Greenberg, your uh, your response to this uh, announcement of the uh, assassination of Azawari, and were you surprised that he was uh, in the midst of Kabul? Yes, I think it was very surprising to many that he was found in uh, Afghanistan. I think it sort of underscored, as Bilal was saying, this resurgent uh, ties between Taliban and al-Qaeda, something that the war on terror sought to and succeeded to the most part, we thought, in separating. Um, and I was also surprised a little bit at um, President Biden's speech, which and the way he uh, described this as part of us having to be ever vigilant about the war on terror, because in many ways, this was the final blow of the sites that the United States had in mind um, encountering the 9-11 uh, threat and in the post-9-11 era, meaning that this was, you know, after bin Laden, who was the most important leader of al-Qaeda um, since 9-11, and that is uh, al-Zawahiri. And so I think that his death is actually a very important moment in understanding the uh, addressing 9-11, 
um, addressing the war on terror. And in many ways, although terrorism may continue to proliferate around the world, and as we know, there's much uh, terrorism in a number of splinter groups, um, the question is, is this, is this really the final part of the post-9-11 war on terror, no matter what um, the future may bring? So um, those are my initial thoughts on it. The author Lawrence Wright wrote extensively about Azawahri in his book, The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11. In 2010, Wright appeared on Fresh Air and talked about how Azawahri was further radicalized after being tortured while imprisoned in Egypt. And so many of the ideas that were percolating there, boiled into al-Qaeda. Um, and the uh, there's one thing that wasn't really, I think, voiced as an idea, but it, the torture that they endured, in my opinion, is what really gave them an appetite for revenge. And the bloodletting that is so characteristic of al-Qaeda, and really is very unusual for terror groups who are mainly interested in theater, I think it was born in the humiliation that those men felt in those Egyptian prisons. So that is Lawrence Wright uh, talking about Al-Zawahri. Um, Karen Greenberg, you wrote the book Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. Can you talk about the significance of him being tortured and just give us a thumbnail history of who Al-Zawahri was? What is his history? Yeah, and, and um, this is something you did well in the introduction to your show, so I'll try not to be too repetitive. Um, but, you know, Ayman al-Zawahi was born to a um, well-to-do family, educated, a family that consisted of doctors, sort of, um, sort of famously numerous doctors within the family. He, too, studied at the University of Cairo, became a doctor, was often referred to as the doctor. Um, and the reason that he was in prison was that he was um, convicted not of the actual assassination of itself, but of, I think, of, of having arms um, in his possession um, as part of the plot it, that assassinated Anwar al-Sadat. And so that is why he went to prison. He went to prison for three years. And yes, the stories of how torture affected him um, were, um, you know, are I, I don't think it's just Lawrence Wright. I think he does a fantastic job. He's a fellow at my center, by the way. Um, a fantastic job sort of telling how it torture breaks down the human being, breaks down the personality, and really is transformative in terms of how it can lead to violence um, in the future. And Ayman Zawahiri is, is an example of this. After he was released from prison, he was expelled um, from Egypt, and he went to Afghanistan, where he met Osama bin Laden, um, and began to began what became this relationship that eventually led to Zawahiri uniting the Egyptian uh, jihadist Islamist forces with uh, bin Laden's Al Qaeda, and was a person who was known for strategy. Um, for masterminding a number of attacks, um, not particularly charismatic, um, not particularly liked, um, but no matter, a very effective strategist um, in terms of fighting. He was identified not just with the plans for 9-11, but prior to that, for the attack on the USS Cole in 2000, which uh, led in the uh, Gulf of Aden off of Yemen, which led to the deaths of 17 servicemen, uh, U.S. servicemen. Um, and all 
also, he was indicted along with bin Laden in the indictment against those who conducted the uh, bombings, as you mentioned, in East Africa in 1998. And so he has a long history after that uh, imprisonment of violence in the name of jihad. Um, and the other thing about Zawahiri that's interesting is that it was bin Laden that basically said, we are going to be an internationalist organization and we are going to attack the West and we are going to attack the United States. Prior to that, much of Islamic Jihad has been focused on local, local issues, local insurgencies. Under Zawahiri's command, after the death of bin Laden, there was a return, not a, not a, a separation entirely from anti-Western, anti-American, but a return to a focus on local issues, local insurgencies. And what much of what Zawahiri did was to try to, to have a hand, if not a formal affiliation, with many of these terrorist groups that were proliferating in, um, in uh, the Middle East, in Africa, and elsewhere. And so he's had an important imprint um, on al-Qaeda for many, many decades now. Um, and so, you know, we'll see what his death actually means going forward in terms of the organization of al-Qaeda, because we don't really know, although many think it will be the third in command, Saif al-Adil, um, who will be in charge of al-Qaeda going forward. Um, but my guess is that al-Qaeda, that this is really a, a identifying moment for al-Qaeda, and whether or not it'll have a future and what that future will look like is very much in question after his death. Well, I'd like to ask follow up on that very uh, uh, issue to with Bilal in terms of th this historically an American approach to dealing with its enemies is that you assassinate the head uh, and therefore you stop the movement. It's not just in terms of bin Laden and Azawari, but the leaders of ISIS. Uh, you could go back to the days when the United States was hunting Che Guevara uh, in Latin America, all the assassination attempts against Fidel Castro, the killing of Saddam Hussein, uh, and even going back to the 1930s, the hunt for uh, uh, Sandino in Nicaragua. Is it your sense that this attempt to cut off the head really deals with the fundamental issues that are raised by these insurgencies? Well, I think al-Qaeda did transform the Taliban uh, as an insurgency over the last 20 years. Uh, let's go back and see how the Taliban learned to use roadside bombs, uh, for example, how they learned uh, to have an army of suicide uh, attackers, how did they learn to have uh, powerful truck bombs, uh, you know. So in my view, al-Qaeda has done uh, their job, as far as they're concerned, and the relationship between the Taliban and al-Qaeda is extremely close, uh, you know, on, on, on the battlefield as well over the last 20 years. And today, if you look at Afghanistan, I would say there is a good uh, several thousand uh, foreign fighters, including Arab fighters, uh, those from Central Asia, uh, operating in Afghanistan side by side uh, alongside the Taliban. And there are those like the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan that are inspired by al-Qaeda. You know, these are militant groups that have lived and fought together in Afghanistan, but also before Afghanistan in places like Waziristan. Um, so it, it would be interesting how the Taliban uh, would try to deal with that internally. First, uh, you know, how do their fighters and mid-level commanders uh, react to this, uh, you know, but then also the issue of foreign fighters. In my view, 
if tomorrow the Taliban wanted to get rid of the foreign fighters, they couldn't because the number is big and that would become a, a headache. But we would have to also see, uh, you know, what would be the future of Al-Qaeda from here on because the Islamic State has a, a presence. It is an emerging threat. We know that. And it, it would be, again, you know, uh, the question of how the Taliban could uh, continue to convince the international community in the West that, you know, they are not only harboring uh, such figures, uh, you know, at the very, very highest echelons, but that they could be trusted. We have to remember this news only comes weeks before, uh, you know, August the 15th, when the Taliban took power militarily. Uh, and in my view also, you know, over the last one year or so, we have continuously reported the presence of uh, drones over Kabul, uh, over uh, northern and eastern parts of Afghanistan. So that also means that the Americans uh, in, in particular, you know, did not trust the Taliban, you know, as partners, because there was this sort of joke going around Kabul before Afghanistan fell to the Taliban, that there was this counterterrorism cooperation going on between the Americans and the Taliban. And I could tell you that in the eastern province of Kunar, where I come from, there was a time when there was ample amount of evidence that the Americans were carrying out airstrikes against the Islamic State. Quite possibly the coordinates were given by the Taliban on the ground through mobile phones. And that did not send a very powerful message at that time to the Afghan government and, and specifically to its special forces uh, who had a very close relationship with the American army. Uh, we want to end by going back to President Biden's speech last night and getting Professor Greenberg's comment on the war on terror. As commander-in-chief, it is my solemn responsibility to make America safe in a dangerous world. The United States did not seek this war against terror. It came to us, and we answered with the same principles and resolve that have shaped us for generation upon generation to protect the innocent, defend liberty, and we keep the light of freedom burning, a beacon for the rest of the entire world, because this is a great and defining truth about our nation and our people. We do not break. We never give in. We never back down. Karen Greenberg, your response to Biden and the so-called war on terror. You know, my response is that the speech could have been much more about how this is a final moment in the war on terror as we defined it after 9-11. I do think that Biden is seeking vindication for pulling out of Afghanistan and being able to say, look, we can still protect ourselves even in Afghan space if we need to by these over-the-horizon strikes. I did think it was a little more bellicose in terms of what the future may bring than I think many of us who have studied the pitfalls of the war on terror might have hoped for. On the other hand, this was an important moment in, in saying that the, those who brought about 9-11 and many of the attacks prior to 9-11 and who threatened the United States after 9-11 have been um, dealt with. The real question is, how does the United States move on now that we're really in a different era of um, great power rivalries, of our attention is turned to elsewhere in the world, 
And as terrorism experts had said from the very beginning, managing terrorism as opposed to making it a war may very much be the, the future of counterterrorism, although I'm not sure we would know that from Biden's speech last night. Karen Greenberg, director of the Center on National Security at Fordham University School of Law, and Bilal Sarwawi, Afghan journalist. We thank you both for being with us. Next up, voters are going to the polls today, among other places, in Kansas. They're to decide whether to repeal the state's constitutional protection for abortion and pave the way for conservative lawmakers to enact a near-total ban on abortion. We'll go to latest in Wichita. Stay with us. Instrumental Rubab by Afghan Ensemble. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As we turn to the first major vote that could shape reproductive rights at the state level since the U.S. Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Today, Kansas is set to vote on a ballot measure that could repeal the state's constitutional protection for abortions and pave the way for conservative lawmakers to enact a near-total ban on abortion. Four states already have similar measures in place—Alabama, Louisiana, Tennessee, and West Virginia. For now, abortion is legal in Kansas, and clinics there have reported an influx of patients from neighboring states where abortion is banned, including Arkansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Texas. For more, we go to Wichita, Kansas. That was the home of George Tiller, assassinated, what, about 13 years ago. He ran an abortion clinic there. We're joined by reporter Amy Littlefield, who focuses on reproductive health care, the abortion access correspondent for The Nation. Her recent piece in the six states, abortion rights are literally on the ballot. You've been on the ground, Amy, in Kansas, ahead of today's vote. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Lay out what you're seeing. Hi, Amy. It's great to be with you on this pivotal day. I'm here in Wichita, Kansas, not far from the clinic of the assassinated abortion provider, Dr. George Tiller, where I spent the day yesterday. Um, and I wanted to come to Wichita to report on this amendment because it's a city with such a deep and rich history and complicated and violent history when it comes to abortion rights in this country. Um, so what's happening here in Kansas today, Amy, is that 
the Republican-controlled state legislature is trying to repeal the right to an abortion that's enshrined in the state constitution. The state Supreme Court in 2019 said there is a right to abortion under the state constitution. And that's allowed clinics here to remain open. And, you know, just to give you a sense of the stakes <laughs> in terms of where Kansas is on the map, if you look at that map, Amy, I mean, it is a wall of deep red to the east and to the south of Kansas. And so patients from Oklahoma, from Texas, from Louisiana, from Arkansas, from Missouri, are all flocking to this state that has actually quite a few abortion restrictions in place um, already here. It's it's not by any means a haven state. Abortion is actually quite heavily restricted here, but it is a pivotal state where, where patients are, are flocking from across the region. And so what Republicans here are trying to do is strip away this right from the Constitution strategically using tactics of voter suppression. And that started with when they scheduled the vote. So they scheduled it for the August 2nd primary, when turnout is about half of what it typically is in a general election. They scheduled it during a primary, knowing that about 30% of voters in Kansas are unaffiliated with the political party. So they're not used to voting in primaries. They may not realize that you can still go to the polls and vote on a ballot amendment like this one, a ballot referendum like this one, even if you're not registered with a political party. they um, Kansas has a requirement that people have to register three weeks before the election. So one of the clinic workers was saying to me yesterday that her son, who's 18, has a vote no bumper sticker on his car. He's so excited to vote in favor of abortion rights, which is no. Um, the no position is for abortion rights. And he's so excited to vote. And then he realizes he just had registered the night before. Well, he's weeks too late to register to actually vote in this election under Kansas law. The language of the amendment is incredibly confusing. I mean, it starts out by stating what the state constitution already says, and then it gives the people through their elected state representatives the ability to pass laws regarding abortion, including ones that have exceptions for rape or incest. Well, Reading that, you know, you might have to really puzzle through whether that sounds like a good thing or a bad thing, right? And whether the, the pro-choice vote is is yes or no. If you want to keep the status quo, is it yes or no? Um, and, and then to top things off, yesterday, um, a text message from a toll-free number went out to thousands of Kansans. I was sitting, uh, standing in the clinic um, when the staff there got, um, started getting notifications that, even people um, that they knew were getting these text messages. And these text messages said voting yes will give women a choice. Well, it's the total opposite of that, in fact. Voting no is the pro-choice position here. Voting yes would allow state lawmakers in Kansas to pass even the most extreme anti-abortion laws here. And so this was a very clearly deceptive text from an anonymous number. And um, I tried to trace it. I tried to call it. I tried to message it. And I just got a dial tone. So um, and it's it's a it's a violation, most likely, of, of FCC rules, according to the ACLU. So this is just to sort of give you a, a sense of this is not an up or down clear yes or no vote on abortion, because abortion rights proponents here understand that abortion is a popular issue. A majority, more than 60 percent 
percent of Kansans do not want to ban abortion in all circumstances. And so it's just a question of whether those people get to the polls, can vote and understand what they're voting for. Um, we know that when um, measures to ban abortion or enshrine personhood for fetuses have been on the ballot, um, and it's a direct question of, of the most extreme abortion ban or not, those measures have been voted down in even the most conservative straight states like South Dakota and Mississippi. Um, but what's uh, Amy, less clear— uh, Amy, I'd yeah, like to ask you, you attended an anti-abortion rally last night in Wichita could, uh, uh, called uh, Unite the Light, Prayer f uh, for Value, Them Both. What happened there and who spoke? You know, it was a prayer um, vigil, so they had spread out all along the sidewalk um, in front of a, a large Christian church here in Wichita holding vote yes signs. And, you know, it was interesting, Juan, if I had to guess, you know, standing there on the sidewalk watching the cars go by, um, which side this was going to go just based on people's reactions to these signs, you know, some of them were honking in support and, and seemed excited about um, the vote yes position. And then some were yelling profanity out their window or booing. Um, so what's really clear is that this amendment is deeply present here, right? You, you can't go a block without seeing a lawn sign on one way or the other. The second I crossed the state line into Kansas, I saw a Rosie the Riveter sign that said, trust women, vote no on two. Um, it's absolutely everywhere. Um, and, um, and I think what's really encouraging is that there has been an enormous grassroots mobilization that might just tip the odds that are stacked against the abortion rights position here that might just be enough. I mean, I think it's going to be very close, but I think abortion rights supporters here are cautiously optimistic that the huge upswelling of outrage and political participation from people who've never been involved in that kind of activism before will be enough to, to tip this the balance in their favor, even though Republicans have really tried hard to stack the deck against um, abortion rights in this vote. And the significance of Kansas, not only for Kansans, but as you describe the sea of anti-abortion states around the thousands of women who are coming from all over the Midwest, for example, in Texas, uh, as well, um, uh, uh, other places in the Midwest would then not have Kansas to come to. Absolutely, Amy. I mean, I spent the day at um, Dr. George Tiller's former clinic in Wichita yesterday, and the last patient of the day who left in the late afternoon, you know, I spoke with her and asked her where she was coming from. And she said, oh, I'm, I said, do you have a long ride home? She said, oh, just to Oklahoma City. Well, Oklahoma City is two and a half hours, maybe three, you know, depending on traffic from Wichita. OK, but she had been talking to women in the waiting areas, to, to other people who were there that day for their abortions, to people who had to pay $400 a piece just to fly into, into town, people who had gotten in the car that morning. There were people there who had gotten in the car that morning, driven um, at 2 a.m., driven from Dallas, um, a patient who drove from Houston, which is nine hours. And what I want to emphasize, Amy, is these are the patients who made it that day, right? And and what staff were really trying to get across is this is not the common experience. This is the anomaly. The patients who make it to their appointment and have their abortion at this point, it is so hard to get access that those patients are the exception and, and not the rule. And what I, towards the middle of the day when all the patients had been checked in, 
I went over to the desk and I asked the staff, what about the patients who didn't make it here today? There were seven patients, 20 people who were seen, seven patients who just had no-showed, meaning they'd called them and said, you know, hello, uh, can, you know, why didn't you come to your appointment? And they hadn't got, they hadn't reached anyone. They just didn't know what had happened to these patients. And, um, and those patients were supposed to be coming from Dallas, Tulsa, a town in Oklahoma that's four hours away, Richmond, Texas, nine hours away, Arkansas. And two of those patients were right up against the, the limit, the, the state limit. They were not probably going to be able to get an abortion unless they could travel even further to Colorado or New Mexico. So those are two people who are staying pregnant. Those are the stories that we're not hearing. Um, we are hearing the stories of people and staff, I should add, because Trust Women has a clinic in Oklahoma where abortion is banned and has been for some time, their staff are making that same journey as the patients, um, traveling to be able to provide care to that influx of patients from other states. Well, of course, we're going to continue to follow this. And as we speak in Kentucky, a state court of appeals has reinstated an abortion trigger uh, ban and um, a law that makes abortion a felony to perform. Amy Littlefield will be coming back to you soon. Amy Littlefield is a journalist who focuses on reproductive health care, abortion, abortion access correspondent for The Nation, former Democracy Now! producer, joining us today from Wichita, Kansas. Next up, as New York, California, Illinois declare health emergencies over monkeypox, we'll speak to Stephen Thrasher, his new book out today, The Viral Underclass. Stay with us. You know, it's always okay to cry. You don't even need to know why, but don't you ever feel alone inside? If you need to know the truth, I still have Carlisle. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. President Biden is naming top officials from FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, to coordinate the White House response to monkeypox here in the United States, where the virus has been reported in 47 states in Washington, D.C. New York City has now been declared monkeypox, um, uh, or has declared monkeypox a public health emergency. Officials describe the city as the epicenter of the outbreak, with tens of thousands thousands of people vulnerable to exposure. California and Illinois also issued a state of emergency over the rapid spread of monkeypox. Worldwide, over 23,000 infections have been detected in at least 80 countries, with the U.S. leading confirmed cases, though health experts believe many more monkeypox cases have gone undiagnosed due to shortages of testing. This week, the first monkeypox deaths outside of Africa were reported in Spain, Brazil and India. For more, we're joined by Steve Stephen Thrasher, an LGBTQ scholar, 
professor at Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University, faculty member of Northwestern's Institute of Sexual and Gender Minority Health and Well-Being. His new book is out today, The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide. Stephen Thrasher, welcome back to Democracy Now! Congratulations on the release of this extremely important book. Um, you wrote a piece for Scientific American headlined Blaming Gay Men for Monkeypox Will Harm Everyone. Um, talk about why this is so important and what we should understand about the state of monkeypox in the United States and around the world now. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. I wrote that piece. I started writing it in the end of May. And like many people I'm in conversation with, we were extremely concerned about the way that monkeypox was moving around the world and how we were starting to see cases in the United States. And so at the time, I was making the case to the Biden administration, to the national government, that we really needed to proactively go ahead and start vaccinating men who have sex with men, particularly considering that we were coming into Pride Month. There were multiple opportunities all through June, beginning where I live normally in Chicago with the International Mr. Leather Festival, and there are going to be Pride events all through the month. And we really needed to take that opportunity to vaccinate people because we could see where the outbreak was happening. That did not happen, as the New York Times uh, reported last week, really enragingly. The Biden administration had the option to purchase 300,000 doses of this new vaccine that, that works quite well and is easy to administer, but kind of took away its approach. And so that's why we're seeing this unfolding disaster now. And this is a difficult thing to think about and parse, but it's really important that we think about it and drill down on it, that this disease uh, is one that, in theory, can affect anyone, but it has worked its way particularly into communities of men who have sex with men. And there are reasons why I think that it's important to think of it as a sexually transmitted infection. Like other viruses, HIV, hepatitis, herpes, HPV, um, STIs can move in a variety of ways, but this one is really moving sexually right now. Um, and I had started looking into last week uh, a couple of different research papers. One was out of London, which showed 196 of 197 cases were from men who have sex with men. That is new information that we didn't quite understand uh, in a lot of countries in Europe and North America. But also, as NPR was reporting earlier this week, Based on a research paper I had also recently read, uh, there's a, a man, uh, Dr. Agwena, in Nigeria who had looked at an outbreak and studied an outbreak in 2017. And in 2019, he started uh, publishing research saying he had reason to think that this virus was moving through genital secretions. So we have on our hand a situation that has taken a turn. This virus has changed. A lot of people's reference around monkeypox is thinking of it primarily coming off of uh, close contact with animals and close contacts with other people, but it seems to have changed in a way that it's particularly moving through sexual contact between men who have sex with men. This does not mean that it's a gay disease and shouldn't be stigmatized that way, but we shouldn't be ashamed to think about who it is affecting and how it is affecting people and to deal with it um, with a great sense of urgency, not with panic, but with a real sense of urgency right now. And and uh, Stephen Thrasher, in your book, uh, you br you break your book up into twelve chapters that look at uh, twelve factors that create the conditions for unequal viral transmission. And some of the chapters, what on racism, on individualized shame, on capitalism. Could you talk about why you structured the book that way, and especially the chapter on individualized shame? Certainly. So 
I've seen over my time of reporting on viruses as a journalist and, and studying them as a scholar uh, that the same kinds of people are coming into harm's way. And it's been alarming sometimes when you look at how different than the viruses are. So I'd seen for years in reporting on the criminalization of HIV and on the uh, the killing of uh, black people by police officers and black poverty that you kind of see the same maps. Um, HIV is happening in the places where, uh, where police violence happens a lot. And then when the COVID-19 pandemic began to break out, I started seeing the same maps, uh, both in St. Louis, where I've been doing research, and also in New York City. And that seems strange to me because HIV and uh, SARS-CoV-2 are extremely different viruses. They move differently. They have very different virological uh, components to them, but they were happening in the same places. And that's because they're all these social determinants of health that place people uh, in in the path of viruses and also make their bodies less likely to be able to um, defend them. Even when we look at something like with uh, COVID-19, it's it's primarily killing people who are elderly. People who are in nursing homes that are in poor areas are much more likely to die. And so we're seeing something similar again now with monkeypox, that it's happening to not only men who have sex with men in the United States, but as the Washington Post reported last week, about two-thirds of the cases are happening towards uh, black and brown people. And certainly anecdotally, I haven't seen good research on this now, but certainly anecdotally, white people and professionals like myself who have time on their hands have been able to get vaccines. And if we don't deal with that, then we're going to see upper class people getting access to the monkeypox vaccine, while poor people, black and brown people, get less access to it. And with LGBT people, something that I think can help um, viewers understand why it's the social determinants, you know, we know that there's some kind of sexual transmission component with something like HIV or monkeypox. But with COVID, LGBTQ people were more likely to get sick, more likely to die of COVID. And that's not because there's any sort of sexual component to COVID. It's because LGBTQ people are structurally lower class. We're poor. We're more likely to lose our jobs. We're less likely to have salary jobs. We're less likely to have health insurance. And so all of those things make our bodies vulnerable in such a way that viruses have an easier time getting into them, particularly anti-trans laws and anti-trans practices make it difficult for people who are trans to get the health care that they need in general and the health care they need around viruses specifically much more difficult. And then we become a much easier point of entry and reproduction for viruses. Uh, and you also write about the role of borders, because uh, obviously viruses uh, do not respect borders of nations. And uh, could you talk about that as well? And I think we have got about a, a minute or so. Sure. So borders themselves create a kind of violence. And when we try to keep people inside of a nation or inside uh, a gender identity, we put up a very strong wall. And the United States, uh, you know, one of the, the biggest parts of our viral history is that at Guantanamo Bay, it was not founded for 9-11, uh, referring to your stories earlier from day. It was actually founded 10 years before that, when the, Bo- the first Bush administration tried to keep Haitians from coming into the country. And they set up this infinite detention camp uh, in Cuba at Guantanamo Bay. And they tested everyone for HIV, and they sterilized everybody who was positive for HIV. And so we imagine that the U.S. has no viruses in it, that they're somewhere else. But with monkeypox and uh, COVID, we are the leading country in the world with these infections. And so it's not a matter of keeping them out. It's a matter of dealing with them inside the borders of our own country and working with other countries to uh, lower transmission. We're showing images uh, by Molly Crabapple, by the way, uh, who illustrates your book. Amazing. We're going to do more in part two, but we only have 20 seconds. Not a single vaccine has made it to Africa. 
Uh, that's certainly my understanding. I know that none had made it to Nigeria where Dr. Goyna had done this really amazing work. Uh, and if we had dealt with these countries and helped them earlier, we would not be dealing with this global pandemic now. And we're going to talk much more extensively about this uh, in part two and posted at democracynow.org. Stephen Thrasher, LGBTQ scholar and journalist, his new book, The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide. That does it for our show. A belated happy birthday to Rob Young. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Stay safe, wear a mask.